Hello, you're listening to an episode of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. Today's episode is a recording from a webinar we held on May 2nd, 2023, titled China's Recent Geopolitical Success and Influence in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Central South America. Contributors to this webinar include Major General James Spider Marks, Lieutenant General Robert Walsh, Rachel Washburn, and Peter Chur. Here's Rachel to start the conversation. Good afternoon, good morning, depending on where you're calling from. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedules to join Academy Securities for our geopolitical webinar. Today, we are going to be focused on discussing some of China's influence around the globe, um, whether that be in the Middle East, in Africa, or in our hemisphere in South and Central America. Um, This conversation has uh, gained a lot of interest and relevancy by the very nature of America's relationship with China. The conversations around US and Chinese relationship used to be partnership. Now it's a little bit of conversations around competition and sometimes talking about China as an adversary. So with that as the lens of this conversation, General Spider Marks, can you talk about the evolution of that language of our relationship with China and why we need to evaluate their influence globally um, through that lens? Well, thank you, Rachel, and thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, I I think it's easy to say that with the invasion of Ukraine over about a year and a half ago, that if we were to focus our um, attention, our diplomatic and geopolitical presence globally, and kind of overlay that in terms of our relationship with China, it's easy to see that in parallel with what Russia was is doing, started to do in February of 22, and I would say the, not the decay, but the dilution of some of the connective tissues between the United States and its relationship with China really started at about the same time. However, when you really think about it, we can go back several years and see that the notion of China being more than simply a trading partner, um, a, a tremendous presence in the banking world, and potentially an opportunity for the United States and other global powers to have a relationship that might be fulsome, might be equitable, uh, might in fact lend itself to um, a certain degree of openness. Um, it really indicates now, or at least we, I think we're in a position now where it's fair to say that as Rachel described it, it is now um, leaning more toward adversarial and it's what our administration has described China as a pacing threat. What that means is that is the number one competitor in terms of our assessment globally and what we must account for globally. So I think it's evolved over the course of years, but it really has come to light as a result of the invasion of Ukraine and certainly the introduction of a new administration about two years ago. And whether Xi Jinping is now considering whether Trump was a one-off or whether Biden is a one-off. And that now is directing from China's perspective, their relationship, their engagement, and where they think the soft points are, where the non-negotiable points are in terms of their relationship with the United States. And as we've seen other partners that we have and other nations that have now routinely shown up communicating and engaging with Xi Jinping 
to include President Zelensky most recently. Sir, appreciate those thoughts. And General Walsh, want to hear your point of view as part of the administration and the team that first identified China as a strategic competitor through the national security strategy. Would love to hear your point of view about what events, what were the decision points that essentially allowed for that sort of new language to be established in policy and how you've seen things shift in the um, five or six years since that was established. Yeah, th thank you, Rachel. Um, and uh, and thanks for everybody and the viewers that we have and the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, I think it's important to look back, you know, a lot of uh, the national security strategy is driven a lot by the military planners. We have a lot of planners in the military. We spend a lot of time looking at threats, looking at conflicts, looking where the world's headed. So the military influences our national security an awful lot. And I think we went about 10 years without having a national security strategy. We were heavily focused on counterterrorism and really take, didn't take a, a step back to put together a strategy. Our, our national security strategy is like any corporation strategy, where are you headed and in, in what the long-term goals and objectives are. Um, and when we, when we stepped back to do that, uh, it was really when the Trump administration came in. And, and I will also say that this has been a very bipartisan approach through the, uh, you know, really the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, and then to the, uh, and now the Biden administration on viewing China. But as you said, Rachel, the, the evolution of it has changed. And we really have started looking at, you know, uh, coming out of Afghanistan and Iraq, looking at what we called pure competition, Russia and China. Um, the Biden administration now has really defined China as that pacing threat, as General Mark said, uh, and really has put China out in front. And I think as, as we kind of stepped back and looked at that evolution of China being a, a partner all the way back from the Nixon administration, when we started developing relationships with China, um, could we bring them into the fold? And a lot of that was really based on keeping them out of the Soviet Union sphere of influence. And we worked with them, we developed them, we built relationships with them. And uh, what we really kind of saw back then was the economic engine that really China was. And so much of that influence has been on the economy through their Belt Road Initiative, Made in China 2025, um, where they wanted to kind of dominate and lead the world in technology. Uh, and then we've seen not only the economy just booming around China, but across the globe with their influence in places like you know, Africa, uh, South America, Central America, Latin America in general, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, things like Huawei, you know, and how they were kind of really moving out economically. But then in the last few years, we've seen a really big growth in their military. So that lever of power is the military is continuing to grow. And I would just say now what we're kind of, I think, seeing is a little bit of a shift as their military really has grown now. I think in a lot of ways, um, China is starting to see that their aggression is maybe causing them some damage diplomatically uh, with their aggressive military nature in around Taiwan, the South China Sea. And I think now we're seeing, um, again, more emphasis put on their economic development, which follows their along with their diplomacy. So I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but I think what we're seeing is this economic engine that they've got. Uh, how it's leading in diplomacy, how around the globe we see that their influence is different than the U.S.'s influence, 
and their state-led model is what they're pushing. Theirs is a better way than ours, uh, and they are reaching out to lots of countries around the globe to show that they can help them and gain more influences. We see that competition growing in many ways. We're behind the power curve as we came out with the nation's focus on counterterrorism. And now we see China ahead of us in many areas, both diplomatically, economically, and also now in many areas militarily. Hey, hey Rachel, can I um, follow up with what Bob just said? And I think it's he put it so well that when the Nixon administration began the outreach to China, the notion that we could, as Bob so well described, keep Beijing away from Moscow was reinforced early on when Vietnam, post our our departure from Vietnam, Vietnam joined the Communist International in 1979. And China, upon that, China invaded Vietnam, two-month excursion, killed a whole bunch of people, destroyed a whole bunch of land, and then left. It was not a war of conquest. It was a war of consequence. And clearly, the reinforcement to our strategic thought was Beijing is going to figure out a way to engage with the United States very positively based on that event, and that certainly there were others. But immediately after establishing this, this incipient relationship, we get this positive reinforcement, which really now puts us in a position as we fast forward of having these routine disappointments, thinking that we might have been able to establish a good relationship and it simply wasn't going to work. That's an interesting bit of history. Um, Peter, want to hear your point of view. Both General Marks and General Walsh touched on DIME, the um, way that nations uh, exert influence abroad, whether that be diplomatically, informationally, uh, militarily or economic. And you have some really interesting insights, quite frankly, on all four, but certainly on the economic element. would love to hear how you view our relationship with China and how China exerts their influence globally from your point of view. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I would start with how we were versus the Soviet Union. So if you looked at diplomacy, the Soviet Union had enemies and countries they were trying to coerce. So they didn't really have diplomacy as a full-scale model. They had information where they were good at disinformation. One of our advantages was we only tell the truth, at least in theory, we only tell the truth. And that resonated with parts of the world. Military, we were probably somewhat equal, though it looks now maybe they were never quite as equal as they thought, or we might have even thought. And economics, they were very, very weak. And so I think as we transitioned for this competition with China, they were very good on information. We are still good at information. Militarily, they've been building up as general... Their economic power was something I think we weren't used to dealing with, right? When we were facing the Soviet Union, there was never an economic power. They, were, they never used economics really to their advantage. So that was something I think that we were behind on, right? When we look at the world and who's not only got access to all the rare earths and critical minerals, it's China. Who does 90 some odd percent of the processing of rare earths and critical minerals? It's China. So we kind of slipped, I think, a little bit on the economic, maybe because we didn't realize that. And now I'm a little bit concerned we're doing the same thing on diplomacy, where maybe China was D with a small D, where they had some elements of diplomacy. But recently, they've been very vocal, very out there. They put out this peace idea, which was clearly self-serving. But as far as I can tell, they're really the only ones seriously talking to both um, Putin and trying to reach out to Zelensky. So we're not doing that. Beyond that, whereas the Soviet Union had clear enemies and clear friends, China is engaged with um, Italy, with France, right? They have Macron saying things. So they, they are using their economic power. 
to you know inform their diplomacy. So I think this is big. And I think two consequences that we'll wind up probably discussing a little bit later are, one is who's gonna be the reserve currency of the world? I think we are, but we've got some theories on that. And that's more and more a question that's popping up as China is basically aggregating all of these autocratic resource rich nations into it and trading under the yuan. And then the other part is I'm starting to see, and I strongly believe we're going to see this transition from made in China to made by China. And one thing that concerns me is we have a lot of discussions about IP and things like that. And I would say, and this is maybe a bit generic, but the US view is almost like, well, we still want access to Chinese markets. We've been trying to get access. We haven't got them. We're going to try and get that. I think the real battle is going to be China's like, hey, our IP is actually very good now. We've taken a lot of yours. We've developed some of our own. We're going to start expanding our footprint and trying to sell our products globally. And I think that's a potential risk that comes out of all this. And it really feeds directly from how they're leveraging their power. Can you pull the thread a little bit more on the digital yuan um, and how you view the risk to the dollar as the global reserve currency? Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, like a lot of things with China, there's so many moving parts. And it's that combination of moving parts that when they all come together, we'll be like, ooh, how did this happen? And you'll be able to point to these, but we're not necessarily looking at them. So first is I think they took good advantage of the fact that um, we basically weaponized Russia's dollar holdings. So they went around to every autocratic resource-rich nation who doesn't have human rights concerns, who isn't very friendly necessarily, and said, whispered in the ear, why are you doing so much in dollars? And again, like everything else, they'd set the stage. They already had futures contract in oil and gold listed in yuan on Shanghai. So we're setting the stage. So I think on that side, they're accumulating more and more trade. At the other side of this, they spent a lot of time lobbying the index providers to make sure that their bonds go in these global indices. They know that the global bond market for sovereign debt's probably 60 to 70% indexed. So getting their bonds in means there's a ready buyer in all these countries who use indices. So that's another part. And then I think the third stage is really using the digital wand, where for now, I think it is to take control of their own population so they can understand every transaction that's going on. Not that they couldn't get the data from WePay or Alipay or whatever all the various names are out there, because China's way ahead in terms of paying by mobile communication, but they want this more and more to come into a centralized system. They're going to be able to use that to give money to people who behave poorly. They may take money away from people who behave against the system. But American companies are starting to get sucked into it where if you have a Chinese customer, you have to honor this. And so far, it's really meant to be just Chinese consumers and benefiting the Chinese consumer. But you can see a day where they start doing more on digital currencies with some of these other nations that are trading with them, where they start saying, hey, any supplier internally has to be used. Oh, if you're getting supplier from outside, you have to use this. So I think they're setting the stage to lead in digital currencies because they want the information and it will force people into their ecosystem. And we're way behind on that idea. Absolutely. There's some really interesting articles out there about China's influence around the globe, whether it be Africa or in Latin America, and how much they're supporting their um, security efforts and policing efforts and how that all gets tied into the informational and technology aspects, too. Um, a really interesting point. We're actually starting to get some questions from the audience. And for those um, who maybe joined the call uh, a little bit late. If you do have any questions, please, um, at the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, please include them and we'll be sure to address them either during the webinar or um, as a follow-up. Um, so want to get into some of the recent high-profile events of Xi exerting his influence. So um, one of the questions from the audience speaks just to that. 
Um, General Marks, can you talk about why some of our traditional allies are cooperating with China? We saw it happen as they brokered um, some diplomatic talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We're actually seeing some of our allies try to um, mitigate some of Xi's influence with Japanese prime minister visiting Africa, sort of in coalition with our efforts. Why are we seeing some of our traditional allies uh, partner with Xi, and how can our allies also work to um, help enhance U.S. interests globally? Well, it's a great question, and I think the short answer is the, the ball's in our court in terms of relationships we want to have internationally. The narrative often is China is exerting itself and is <clears throat> presenting a far more compelling case for other nations to have more fulsome and broader relationships with the autocratic nation, the communist nation of China. Okay, well, the answer really is, we're not going to lose our international or global influence. Only if, I mean, if we do, it's only because we've allowed that to happen. So clearly what we've, what we've seen is a vacillation, a, a very broad pendulum swing politically. We go from President Obama, we go to President Trump, we're back to President Biden, and we see this, it's almost whipsawing. And again, as I said earlier, the nation looks at the, the other nations of the world, look at the United States and go, was, was Trump the aberration or is Biden the aberration? We've seen Biden before but we haven't seen President Biden before. And this President Biden isn't necessarily the Vice President Biden for a relatively moderate, internationally engaged, somewhat practical President Obama. So inter internationally, the United States has a challenge in that we have an invitation to struggle. And nations, whether they're friends or whether they're on the fence, they see that as a matter of routine. And they figure, look, I can, I can predict one, the key element of leadership across the board that we would all agree to is predictability. I want to be predictable to my, to my bosses. I want to be predictable to my colleagues. I want to be predictable to my subordinates so that if things are great, they know what's going to happen. If things are lousy, they know what's going to happen in terms of how I engage. That allows nations to engage. Previously, President Trump was incredibly unpredictable to allies. That's not what you want. You want to be incredibly predictable. And now we're looking at Biden, and Biden seems to have a, a predilection to engage moralistically to a level that we haven't seen before. So I can understand completely why other nations might be hedging their bets and looking at the predictable Xi Jinping, who, oh, by the way, just doesn't rep represent a one-party China. He represents a one-person China. He's going to be around for the long haul. So other nations are looking at that. And so it's not surprising at all that they, they, those other nations, can figure with a degree of certainty that they can have good relationships with both the United States and China. Yeah, can I add one thing in there, Rachel? Go ahead. I would also say they were very creative in how they used their Belt and Road Initiative, right? Lending to these countries. I always view China really as a vulture lender. So they were lending to these countries in the anticipation that a lot of countries wouldn't be able to meet those payments, which would just bring you back to the negotiating table where China could say, oh, okay, we can reduce your interest rate. Oh, we can extend your debt. 
but um, hmm, you're going to have to let one Navy ship in your port every year. You're going to have to do this. So I think China was very creative. And I think a lot of people kind of view China's lending program as, oh, they made a, bad, a lot of bad loans. And I think that misses the point. They made these loans knowing that they weren't probably going to get paid in a lot of cases, but fine with that, because then they could exert value out of these countries. They could take what they wanted as part of a debt negotiation, rather than demanding something up front the country would not have agreed to. They, they bend back door through that. So I think that's an important part when you look at a lot of the countries engaging with China. How many took on debt from China and were part of the Belt and Road Initiative? So I think they use that very creatively. General Walsh, I wanted to get your point of view on um, what do you think Xi's goal is when it comes to his methodology abroad? Is it to become a peacemaker, dealmaker in, in order to threaten the United States? Is it simply to just advance their economic agenda, um, if you could, in some ways, predict their objectives. Um, what is your view? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Rachel. Um, you know, I think Xi, if, of all the leaders communist China has had in the Chinese Communist Party, Xi, um, probably since Mao Zedong, has been, done the most to consolidate power around him and the Chinese Communist Party. Their strategy is to become the global leader once again. If you go back in Chinese history and go back 4,000 years when China was the Middle Kingdom, they view themselves as the global leaders and the natural global leaders to lead. They felt that they were displaced by the colonial powers that came in, you know, in the 1800s and put a lot of repression on them. So they see themselves now as wanting to grow and become that global leader. And they, as Spider said, they're taking a real long-term view. We have less of a, a opportunity to take that long-term view when we go from administration to administration. Xi was just elected for his third term, being considered president for life now. So as he consolidates that, to be that global leader, their strategy is to lead. And when I say lead, this is where the adversarial relationship comes in. To lead, they also want to displace the U.S., as that global leader. And they're using all those different levers we talked about to, to lead around the globe and displace us. So therefore now when you start to see some of that aggression start to come out on the military side, they're tampering that down and now putting much more emphasis into economics and diplomacy. Why we see Xi stepping out now with the deal that he just brokered in Beijing between um, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, the same thing where he put together the, the plan and has reached out to Zelensky and Putin to be maybe the peacemaker there. So trying to show that this vacuum that the US has had when it come, came to leadership diplomatically, he's looking to fill that. And at the same time, as Peter discussed, the Belt Road Initiative, um, and, in, and if you step back, they looked started with their Made in China 2025 very aggressive, dominate the world, uh, almost in a technology war format. They took that off the table because it was too aggressive. They put out their Belt Road Initiative. Now they're taking that off the table a little bit more and showing that they want to use diplomacy and economics together to lead. And so I think the long-term plan really is, is to challenge the U.S. everywhere they can. Uh, they've seen benefit in siding with Putin inciting their long-term agreement uh, 
between uh, Putin and Xi. Why does that help Xi? It just is more competition to displace the U.S. And, and I'll finish by saying, if you look across the globe, there's a lot more countries that look a lot more like China or Russia or more autocratic governments than there are that look like us in the West. And so a lot of it, I think, too, is the U.S. tends to put a values-based or an aid-based approach around the globe. China's using a purely economic or trade-based approach. Most countries look at that, they wanna do trade, they wanna make deals, and China's doing that where again, we come in in a lot of cases with our values-based or the aid-based. In the sense of Saudi Arabia, I think that's why we alienated the Saudis with our values-based as the Biden administration came in. That opened things up for uh, Xi to come in there and now broker a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. We'll see where that goes. But if anything, what you see is now it's upset things. And now you see Israel on the sidelines, all the things that were going on with the Abraham Accords of working together with the Arab countries with Israel against Iran. Now you see those countries back together, having negotiations, discussions with Iran and Israel sitting on the sidelines. So a perfect example there of how Xi, in that case, has kind of moved the U.S. aside as a leader, in this case, diplomatically. And, and you know, Bob, if Saudi if the relationship between Saudi Arabia and um, Iran goes sour in some particular way, China is not going to be held accountable for that. They're going to simply say the you guys, we opened the door, we facilitated this link up, and you guys have failed to make it happen. Whereas the United States, had they brokered that deal, they would have been inexorably woven into it with a number of quids that if you if step A, it must be followed by step B. And, and the point being, you described it so well, the point being is that autocratic nations can turn on a dime. I mean, look what happened internally when they went from no COVID to COVID doesn't exist. I mean, that literally happened in China overnight, overnight. That would never happen in any other nation that doesn't have that level of autocratic control. And democratic nations with routine elections and election cycles and an invitation to struggle are going to turn that ship incredibly slowly. Nations will sit on the sideline and try to figure out what's going to happen, what's going to be the azimuth of that ship as it turns. You both talked a little bit about the um, about Saudi Arabia, and that seems to be a really interesting um, microcosm of what's happening with China. Actually, one of the questions from the audience was about what countries have financially benefited the most from the Belt Road Initiative. Just a quick search looks like Saudi Arabia is um, one of the top recipients of funds um, last year. So, Peter, I know you have some, some thoughts about this um, event specifically. Yeah, I think people are starting to pay attention to history a little bit. And so the Saudis, right, the moment that we weaponize Russia's dollar reserves, China clearly whispered to them, why do you have all this stuff in dollars? Why do you only care about dollars, right? So I think that was a real issue, especially given the Biden administration, particularly at the start of it, had said they wanted to make them a pariah state. So it doesn't take a financial genius to say, hmm, someone wants me to make a pariah state, and we've seen their willingness to turn their dollar holdings against them. Maybe I shouldn't have only dollars then I think we're ultimately a horrible customer if you think about it, right? Every single day we wake up telling the world, we don't want to use fossil fuels. We hate fossil fuels. We don't want plastics. We don't want all these things. Guess what Saudi Arabia makes? So China's there telling them, don't worry, we're going to be using fossil fuels for the to the, to the end of time, right? So we are not a good customer. Then I think finally, 
we went and asked the Saudis for a favor, right? We asked them with the Russian war to um, increase production. They went ahead and increased production. And at the same time, we went ahead and drained the SPR. So I'm sure someone at the Saudis is saying, you guys asked us for a friggin' favor. We gave in to the favor. And then you kind of, you know, give us the double whammy by releasing your SPRs. We didn't need this. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the second they could, A, I think they're seeing slowing global demand. And I think the OPEC plus um, last round of cuts was much more economic, but they realize that we will say and do whatever we want when we need them. And I think more and more countries are saying, we can't live with the six month, two year, sort of four year terms that we're seeing out of you. We want something that's a little bit more stable, even if we don't like parts of it. And that played in. So I think there were a lot of pure, simple economic and energy reasons Saudi's turning. And I think we've done that across the globe, unfortunately. Well, looking out beyond the Middle East then, um, General Walsh, curious, we, you talked a little bit about the quality versus quantity approach when it comes to establishing alliances, partnerships, or influence around the world. Um, as you look at where China is having uh diplomatic wins or economic wins. It's in a lot of places where U.S. has um, taken a big step back when it comes to influence. Even just in our hemisphere in Latin America, um, there's been a disengagement from South and Central American countries. Uh, in fact, we have over uh, nearly, we have a dozen ambassador posts unfilled in that region. Um, and you're just seeing a huge influx of not only money, but of um, diplomatic and security elements in Latin America. How is the United States viewing who we should strategically partner with in order to counter Chinese influence? And is it based off of regions? Is it based off of economic influence globally? What, what does that chessboard look like for the U.S. to counter what seems to be just a mass approach by China? Yeah, great question, Rachel. I I'm not sure the U.S. right now understands the chessboard. And I think in a lot of ways, we're behind the power curve. Um, you look at G's, like we said, the Belt Road Initiative, you just look at a heat map around the globe of where they're engaged. Um, and it goes from their strategy of, you know, that global leader, it goes to getting resources. You know, this isn't the, the issue with batteries and electrification and rare earth minerals just didn't happen in the last two years. They've been after this for about 15 years now. And so that's been diplomacy. It's economic engagement around the globe. You know, so if you look at their two main areas, probably a strategic minerals and resources that they're extracting for lots of reasons we need in a high tech world. And the other one is telecommunications, where they're going into countries all around the globe. Uh, Huawei is one that that, that uh, the U.S. really focused on for a while, but there's a number of uh, Chinese telecommunication companies. But why data is the new gold for the, the 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 globe? So between those resources that they need for things like electrification and the resources that they need for passing data around and controlling the global uh, you know network environment, that's where we see that, and it's a it's a global plan. So when you take a look at the U.S., um, I mean, the really the only thing that I could say is that we have that I've seen very clearly is a policy is we're going to pull out of the Middle East and focus on the Indo-Pacific region. I mean, that's clear what we said we were going to do. That now has left a void in the Middle East, and you see China filling that void in the Middle East. I think we were behind the power curve on uh, what went on in Ukraine. 
And I think that's kind of sucked us into that in a strategy of, you know, how does this end? We're in it for the duration, you know, I think is something along the lines of what the Biden administration says, not a real clear plan. Um, and then when you get into Africa and uh, Latin America and look at that, Chinese is quadrupling uh, probably the amount of trade in those regions compared to the U.S., um, along with the amount of foreign aid of probably doubling what the foreign aid that, that they're putting into those regions. So it's a global policy where you don't see much coming out of the U.S. on what that strategy is. Uh, Sergei Lavrov, the uh, foreign minister from Russia, has just been nonstop into um, uh, Africa, as has been Xi Jinping's uh, foreign minister, uh, gaining that influence. And like you said, if you just take a heat map and look at where investments are going, you could look at uh, Latin America, uh, the Panama uh, Canal. Uh, I think the Chinese have seven major projects going on there. They control two of the five ports in the uh, along the Panama Canal. Um, and so I think Really, I just sum up with is they seem like they have a long term strategy. They're engaged economically and diplomatically. Um, and the U.S. seems to be lacking a strategy on we hear about we're going to put more emphasis into the Western Hemisphere. But really, when you look at it in comparison to what China's doing, we don't see much effort there. You, you know, Bob, it's almost like the Chinese combination of, of two things. One is took a page from our containment strategy, which really drove our post-World War II grand strategy in that they are advancing and engaging wherever they can, but where we used, you know, post-World War II information and military, we used economic power with the, with the Marshall Plan phenomenally well, but then that over the, that, I mean, that was essentially a very precise engagement. There were nations across, you know, European nations, and remember Russia was included in the Marshall Plan, and they said, no, thank you. But once that was engaged and started to gain power, that that went away and nations began to pick themselves up. So we were using information and military. And now the Chinese, as you just said, are using diplomatic, diplomatic and economics. So across the dime, they're choosing to use those other elements very effectively. And that's why I think Taiwan is is safe. The, the, you know, militarily, of course, the Chinese will continue to advance their capabilities and be very provocative. And they want us to respond to that that's the music in the background right it'll begin to increase and suddenly we'll realize what's happening more ships are sailing around taiwan more aircraft overflights etc um we we view this very very i i think we view this in a way that puts the military front and center yet the chinese are saying we've got time i think we might be able to achieve our objective over the course of time through the application of diplomacy and economics yeah. Just to put a fine point on that, Rachel, I think spiders, right? I think it's really important to look, why would Xi attack Taiwan? I mean, you could look at Hong Kong and say it happened there and he'd move into that. But I think they've learned a lot from Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. And if his long-term goal is to be the global leader, he would put that at risk. So they're going to continue to try to intimidate and coerce Taiwan through military power. But at the end of the day, they want to grow their economic power, and he doesn't want to put that at risk. Yeah, and at the risk of sounding cynical to General Mark's point, it is very interesting to watch some of the, at least the messaging around this increased friction. While it's very clear that China continues to invest in all elements of powder, power when it comes to the messaging around US and Chinese 
uh, relationships and who we're partnering with around the globe, it's a huge emphasis on the quad and the military cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. And that message is the one that's being promoted by the U.S. You know, as it relates to a potential um, attack on Taiwan, as opposed to some of that other um counterbalancing the other elements of power around the globe. So a really interesting point. Um, I guess because it is a question that, um, of course, keeps coming up from the audience, um, it sounds like you guys are both uh, relatively um, optimistic or about the potential for an invasion of Taiwan, um, just given the, the other elements of influence that China is utilizing. Well, I, I got to tell you, the um, if there's any good sunny news in all of this Debbie Downer in terms of influence, U.S. influence and global positioning, is that I don't think Taiwan's going to get blown away. I, I, I think ultimately there will be a decision that the leadership in Taipei will make to say, uncle, or we're going to try to work out a deal here. You know, one country, one system over the course of time. It's going to be a Hong Kong-like type of transition because there will be many compelling reasons, as Bob described, for them to do that. Yeah, I, I would say too, Rachel, that uh, I think G is learning. Like I said, if you go back to the Ukraine war, um, I would even step back is, is when the Biden administration came in and the uh, State Department meeting they had in Alaska. We remember that, how aggressive the Chinese were in that meeting. They were dictating to the U.S. how things were going to go in, you know, in their wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, very aggressive. We saw them very aggressive towards Taiwan, the South China Sea, you know, stretching their military out. And if, if anything, I will say that there is a risk point is is Spider and I and you, Rachel, as a military veteran, know our military has been tested for the last 20 years and feel very confident in how our military can perform. Chinese leaders, and when I've worked with the Chinese military, they're itching for a fight. They haven't had the opportunity and they want to prove all these capabilities they've been building on. So, so there's risk from that standpoint um, that they uh, they could something could always go wrong. And I think that's the biggest fear in in the U.S. and certainly from the Indo-Pacific standpoint is what could happen that could go wrong? Could a couple of ships bump into each other? Could a missile exercise turn into a ship getting hit or aircraft getting shot down? Um, but as a whole, I think Xi learned from Putin is, number one, he's got to really have overwhelming military force. Putin didn't have it. Xi's not there yet. He's growing it, but doesn't have it there yet. I think he also learned that he's got to control the information campaign. Putin wasn't able to do that, and I don't think Xi's comfortable that he can do that. And I think um, the other thing, too, is um, can he withstand economic sanctions? Uh, Putin seems to be dealing with that, but he's having some challenges on some of the high-end capabilities. But I think Xi doesn't want to be put in a position where he's trying to grow his economic power to be undergoing sanctions. It's just the reverse of what they want to do. And then finally, he thought he, he wanted Putin wanted to drive a wedge between the U.S. and NATO and was not successful in doing that. And if anything you can see is, is Putin drove NATO together and drove Sweden and Finland wanting to come into NATO. You can see what's going on in the Pacific, the the. the Countries around from South Korea, Japan, Philippines now, 
um, Australia, all growing closer together. And that's part of deterrence. And I think that is deterrence causes China to have to play nicer. And I think they're backing off a little bit on the military side. But now you're seeing them much more push out from the diplomacy side that we talked about and also continue to grow their economic engine across the globe. Yeah, and I would say Xi Jinping, and this is where I would demur to Peter completely, Xi Jinping does not want to lose the EU. I mean, I mean he can't afford to, to lose that trading partner at all. So, of course, he's, I think, going to go slow. He's not going to overtly stand up and support Putin. And he's, gonna, he's certainly um, reading very, very clearly what Putin has done wrong, as Bob, as Bob described. Um, does an economic downturn globally hurt or help uh, China's position? Ooh, um, so in my kind of view of the world, and go back even to this kind of reserve currency situation, I, I've been viewing it very much like the World Wide Web, which everyone uses, is the US dollar. And the dark web, which only some people use, is the yuan. And so there's more and more transactions occurring on that. But the Saudis will continue to trade in dollars. China will continue to trade in dollars. There's just this growing area in the yuan. And, but as they kind of get these autocratic, resource-rich nations, they're importing a lot of commodities. They, in some cases, now have trade deficits. So what would be a natural solution to those trade deficits? Sell Chinese goods into those countries. And you're starting to see that, right? In the latest deal that they had with Brazil, and there are all sorts of tax reasons, other reasons, but BYD, the Chinese EV maker, is going to set up a factory in Brazil to sell things there. And so a global recession, I think, will make people more you know, tight on money. People will be concerned about that. And I think those autocratic resource-rich nations are a potential market for their products. Um, you know, when we were rehearsing the other day, and maybe Bob Walsh can mention this again, but if you look at the airplane industry, right, the only, you know, you, um, sorry, Boeing and um, Airbus dominated the large plane manufacturing. And both companies wanted access to the Chinese market, right? China is the biggest domestic travel market or is about to be and will be going forward. So it's very natural, but you have to build factories there. You have to do this. And all you're starting to see a viable competition come out from these Chinese airline manufacturers. And first, it's going to be domestic, but then they're going to approach a lot of these emerging markets countries, those countries that are selling them resources that they want to buy something back from China. And it's going to be things like that. I don't see U.S. airlines or European airlines buying a Chinese made plane anytime soon, but they're going to kind of take these steps. And I think they go for the lowest hanging fruit first. And a recession might actually help them in that respect. Yeah, Rachel, one thing I think also to add in this area is, um, you know, the, the idea before that an interdependent global economy would bring us together. Now what we're kind of seeing is because of geopolitics, just the opposite is actually happening from us. So if you're the U.S. that's very dependent on China for key capabilities, let's just say it's for our military and China controls that. We certainly don't want to be in a position where we could go to war and China could use that against us to coerce us um, to, to comply with their demands because they've got leverage over us with capabilities they have. So I think what we're starting to see is a, a tech war that's out there that's happening over a lot of high technologies that could be dual use, but it's also causing us to decouple in a lot of ways. So you hear terms start to get into you know, the lexicon. Decoupling is a term that never was talked about before. You're starting to hear it more and more. 
And that decoupling is the Biden administration, as was the Trump administration, let's be less reliant upon them. What it's also doing is Xi Jinping is doing the same thing. We're starting to see more and more where China's trying to gain the capabilities, dominate so they can have it for themselves so that we don't, they don't have the same leverage from the West or the US. And I think that's another piece to this too, as we go forward that in a lot of ways, this isn't good, but the geopolitics are driving us in that direction. And in companies, not only the decoupling, but it's the Biden administration putting clear restrictions on tech companies, whether it's AI, telecommunications, um, semiconductors by U.S. companies to not do business in China. And that's causing some of the uh, the friction and the decoupling that's going on. So, you know, the, the other side of the decoupling coin is codependency. Um, there will remain elements of codependency. And I think in that area, we must define those very, very, very precisely and then ring off, to Bob's point, where there's going to be decoupling. Ring those off so that they don't interfere with those points of intersection and interest that we need to be able to continue to address. Because globalization is not dead, moving increasingly toward regionalization and friendshoring. But globalization exists and will continue to exist. We acknowledge that at our own risk. Well, you mitigate risk by ringing that stuff off, et cetera. So both sides of the decoupling and codependency discussion. Yeah, I was going to say something both very cynical and change maybe slightly the topic a tiny bit, Spider, but I think you'll enjoy this shift in topic. But I think cynically, if you think about what's happened, China heard us have a vision of where we wanted to be on sustainability. And while we scrambled around talking about vision and vision and having no direct plan, China did a lot of things that a rational person would do if they really had wanted to implement our vision. So they went around doing a lot of that. And one thing that keeps coming, and we haven't mentioned this country today, but it's Mexico. It's such a natural adoption for us. If there is some form of deglobalization that we need to do more and more with Mexico, and yet I'm not sure where that stands. I'm not sure how China's gonna intervene there. But as the next logical thing, if you view that China just takes our idea of what we should do and figures out how to do it for themselves, will we muck around? Mexico seems like a real area that we've got to figure something out. And we, and we need to figure it out because it's a neighbor. And in many cases, there's ungoverned space on our border. And number three, the acknowledgement that the AMLO government or the any government in Mexico embraces a corrupt organization. You, you got you to meander your way through that in order to have any type of beneficial uh, relationship. Well, General Marks, I, and for the entire team here, I prefer to end on a slightly optimistic note. Um, so many of our conversations over the last few years, um, you know, there's a lot happening in the world. There's geopolitical friction is a huge driver of volatility um, around the globe. And it's important to address. It's important to, to look at clear-eyed and realistically um, but you're so good about emphasizing where opportunity exists for cooperation. Um, as it stands today with the context of this entire conversation, um, and as we close out today's webinar, do you still see points um, and opportunity for cooperation with China? I do. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do, Rachel. Great question. I appreciate ending on a arcing upward as opposed to having somebody tell you to put the shovel down because the hole's getting so flipping deep. Um, 
I, I do. And the United States has to acknowledge that. I mean, Bob described it, you know, as we were kind of moving through the development of our relationship with China while we were immersed so deeply in a, in a counterterrorism fight and what we had described completely honestly and appropriately at the time is existential and it remains existential. But we have to realize that a relationship with China is a must. Look, we have had very specifically, and I'm sure Bob has participated, I've participated in what used to be called Westpacs, these exercises in the Pacific that included Chinese forces as a matter of routine. We've pushed away from that. We, we have to be able to continue those kinds of discussions. Um, what we had when we had a very, very vitriolic and very well-described relationship against the Soviet Union were established procedures to acknowledge when there when things went bump in the night you know general walsh would get on the phone and talk to his counterpart general marx would get on the phone and i would talk to my counterpart so that we could mitigate we could work through the challenges that exist the concern is we don't have that with china we certainly don't have that with russia russia is not an ascendant power but with china we need to be able to establish those relationships so economically, let's acknowledge there are some codependencies and define those very precisely. Let's also realize that as their military grows, again, as General Walsh described, they are itching for a fight. Well, let's give them something less than a fight and figure out, are there any training opportunities where we can increase the level of trust at the deck level, the deck plate level, young officer to young officer, non-commissioned officer to non-commissioned officer, so that we can create those levels of trust and re-engage in a way that's meaningful and very tangible and very practical so that we can de-risk a lot of our opportunities. Uh, don't use those challenges as a reason not to engage. Thank you, General Marks, General Walsh, Peter, and Rachel for this interesting conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time to listen today. If you have any questions or would like to engage with our geopolitical intelligence group directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.